gets where that comes from you are our heroes the like very first i don't even know like flash video yeah like, before youtube was a thing yep it was great the end, end of, of the world, world. net yes oh, I, I never get tired of it so no, no, no. rachel and i quote it all the time <laughs> i'll take a five of course we'll think on that <laughs> fucking kangaroos <laughs> hi how's life well you know stressful but here we are <laughs> yeah you've been having like one thing after another and... after another <laughs> if it's been a january it sucked yeah <laughs> i threw my back out last oh, week see january was fine oh. for me it's february that's i'm losing my mind i'm watching anya lose her mind as well she's just running around the apartment she's Hi. got she's got the zoomies <laughs> let, her, let her get it out it's fine she's got to start i'm always crazy oh, huh. Hi. She's like, don't talk shit. Come on. I hear you. I see you. <laughs> yeah, but like it uh, makes sense that you're getting more anxiety because, you know, you're getting ready to get your house and yeah. that good stuff. Hi. Hi. She's actually going to sit with us right now. How are you? She's being such a little sweetie. Yes, I mean, she wants less. something. <laughs> <laughs> but but how, how are you besides throwing your back up? Um, <laughs> there were a couple days there, and we already talked about that, like, off mic the other day, that were really rough, um, just because dealing with loss, and then, like, really just throwing my back out, and just life. <laughs> life. Yeah, I, you know, I told you, I, like, pride myself on being independent and being able to take care of myself, which I do, yeah. and, um. I always joke about like I need to find a man with a beach house. I'm still <laughs> I was looking. gonna say I, I am your man, but I don't have a beach house. I'm still Sorry. looking if anyone out there has yeah. a beach house. That was a proposition, but also don't <laughs> try to kill her because then I'll have to kill you, and it's a big old mess that we don't need to deal with. <laughs> it's a different podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was. There were a few days that were really rough just because I like physically couldn't do things that I still had to do and I didn't yeah it's like that's those are the moments where I'm like it would be nice to have somebody there who had my back who'd be like hey you know what like yeah you're fucking hurting I got the dishes I got this. like <laughs> don't worry about the cleaning the cat litter like I'll take care of it um and guys just need... so you know we don't actually live together so no, we don't. I couldn't do that so no everyone stop yelling at me in the background <laughs> no yeah so it was just like there was there was one day I think my low point I was like squatting to clean the litter box and I just like wanted I, you're to so cry. adorable that you actually like did that I would have been like cats you know <laughs> no I yeah I don't, I can't do that to them I've thrown my back out so many times I'm like the little old lady who throws her back out coughing <laughs> like I've legitimately thrown my back out coughing and I do it so many times that I'm just like oh this is happening cool okay <laughs> yeah it's, it's just great <laughs> yeah this is like I mean I've always had back problems because of having scoliosis but it's just like a never-ending dull pain I just live with but yeah. this yeah this was rough this was like the first time that had ever happened yeah that's the first time you've ever thrown your back out yes like in life yeah oh, girl. I I, You're so I, precious. Well, I I have <laughs> to take care of my back yeah of everything else so but just from working from home and I'm I'm a huge gamer so like 
whatever free time I have now <laughs> yeah. with this podcast. Um, <sighs> you know, I'm on my couch gaming. Um, you know, or sometimes watching you know, Netflix or whatever. Uh, but like, I've really been catching myself slouching. Oh my, yeah. As, yeah. Uh, as you say that, I'm like, Shh. so like, <laughs> you're like, me use this fat pillow, this like lumbar pillow for the couch. I got one of these finally for so myself. When you know someone has back problems and they have that pillow, yes. and just like all these weird, like, what is that? I was like, oh, it's for my back. <laughs> so I don't like destroy my tailbone, basically. Yeah. yeah. But beyond that, like, all things considered, I'm doing good. It's just, it's been a rough couple of weeks, but (laughs) it's just been, I mean, I think everyone in these pandemic times, yeah, all of our anxieties are high and higher and just, you know. Yeah. I think some of that was seeping into just the pandemic depression, anxiety. I know you, you were talking about you're getting to a point again where, like, you're I'm afraid to leave the house. Yeah, I'm, like, mildly agoraphobic. And yeah. I used to be that way when I first moved out on my own. Like, I had, because I have extreme social anxiety, mm-hmm. I used to struggle really hard to leave my apartment by myself. And, uh, you know, all the what-ifs and this could happen and that could happen and blah, blah, blah. And that's why I got, you know, the second job. And I was volunteering yeah. and basically working seven days a week because if I didn't, I would just hole up in here and, you know, yeah. be the little weird hermit who's Which like isn't good peeking you. around the curtains. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I have those days. They, um, they come and they go. I definitely was feeling that too, especially like with my back. I couldn't yeah. move. You, <laughs> Kat actually had to bring me like a heating pad <laughs> and some toilet paper because I was like, I'm almost <laughs> out. She um, goes, can you go to the store and get me a heating pad? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then, like, as I'm going to the store, she's like, can you get me toilet paper, too? Because <laughs> I was almost out, and I knew it would be a few days before I, like, could drive. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. Yeah. So I do have you. Like, you came and you yeah. helped. I'm your emotional support human, and you are mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, it's good to have. to have one of those. <laughs> and if you don't have one of those, don't be ashamed to find one. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I mean... Like we hate people, but like you need people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly. When you find your people, appreciate them. Indeed. But All yeah. right. well, welcome. This is difficult damsels. Yay. I'm Kat. I'm, I'm Rachel. I, I changed it up. <laughs> you did. I even get the grumpy the grumpy. Yeah. She asked me today. she's like, What what are you? Grumpy or happy? And I was like, uh, obviously grumpy. And she goes, Okay. And then I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's change it up. I'm going to go with happy. She's like, are you happy? I was like, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, like, you seem happier now. Oh, it's because I went to kickboxing this morning and actually mm. got my aggression out. And, you know, I that feel helps good. too. I feel good. good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I just, you know, almost died of a heart attack on the way there. It's fine. Yeah, I definitely, I miss it, but I'm still, I'm still not comfortable going out in a public. <laughs> um, I know, I know they're taking their precautions, but yeah, I've been holding out, but you've, you've definitely needed some kind of an outlet. Oh so. yeah. I need to get all the built up nervous energy out. Mm-hmm. It's good. <laughs> this is also good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you did it. <laughs> this is another thing I'm, you know, like exercise. Sometimes you just need people to encourage you. Yeah. And so I was like, I'll text you and make yes. sure you go. <laughs> Told a couple of my other yeah. friends I would do that with them. So I need to be better about it. She legitimately, I told her, I was like, you need to text me to wake up. And then you need to text me to get out of bed and get my ass out the door. <laughs> and it worked. And you did. So, yeah. yay. I think it helped that we went high to next week, too. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I wasn't as, the it, energy wasn't as. <laughs> that's why I was like, yeah, we should just to get out in nature and get out of the 
Yeah. And I want to utilize those those mountains, mountains while, I can. while yeah. I can before I move away. She's a really <laughs> cool. It's um it's not a private trail, but not many people use it. Yeah, so. it's not it's not like a um, state owned trail or anything. It's just mountains <laughs> behind my house, and they're gorgeous, and I love them. And yeah, yeah. you see like maybe two or three people tops on the trail, so everybody. You were saying like the pandemic has taught people courtesy again. Oh yeah, like, like courtesy for hiking and biking and all that stuff is like yeah. back. Not necessarily because people are doing it for courtesy, but people are doing it because of COVID. But I'm like, keep this up. Yeah, <laughs> like do it. <laughs> so weird seeing humans. You like do the like weird eye contact and then look away and make sure you got your yeah. six to yeah. ten feet of space. <laughs> let's keep that um, after. <laughs> yeah, let's keep the the social distancing. I'm all for it. Okay, so this is episode six part two of Joan of Arc. Obviously, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I, <laughs> yeah, I would definitely recommend pausing this episode. You can come back to us, but go definitely go listen to episode one of Joan of Arc. Otherwise, you're going to have no fucking real confused. <laughs> but um, okay, so a bit of a recap for the last episode and where we're at now. We are roughly 80 years into the 100 Years War. A series of on-again, off-again battles with the English over the crown of France that rages alongside a civil war within France itself that has utterly devastated the French countryside. A teenage peasant girl by the name of Joan has emerged, claiming to have visions from heaven that promise to drive the English from French lands and put Charles VII on the throne through the aid of God's chosen avatar named the Maid of Orléans. Joan has led the Armagnac army to Orléans, lifting the six-month siege on the city and driving the English from the Loire Valley. Driven by Joan's religious fervor, the Armagnac forces made their way to Rons, where the Dauphin is finally anointed and crowned as King Charles VII of France. With half her mission complete, the only thing left to do is drive the English out of France permanently. Joan is becoming a folk hero in her own time, her reputation growing as God's chosen amongst the French and a witch sent by the devil amongst the English. It's all about perspective. <laughs> it is. This, is. this whole story is about perspective. Unbeknownst to Joan, there are political machinations afoot between the Armagnac and Burgundian forces. War is expensive, and a peasant girl is slowly outgrowing her breeches, God's chosen or not. <laughs> her men's breaches. <laughs> yes, oh that that's going to be the theme of this episode. <laughs> the French king no longer actively supports Joan's campaign against the English, depriving her army of the number she previously had at Orléans. And thanks to a cruel t- twist of fate, the maid of Orléans has been captured by Burgundian forces outside of Compiègne. The maid of Orléans is now in enemy hands. Oh, no. I think I'm like getting the French word thing down. You are. Slowly. And we're going to change it up as yes. soon as you do. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some new players in this story. Like they've been there, but they're going to be like more. Their, their starring roles are now. Yeah. This is their spinoff. <laughs> a little more present in our story. So Philip the Good is the Duke of Burgundy. <laughs> so dark. He was so good. He was it. so good. They had to call him Philip the Good. Is his name Philip? I missed that because I just heard the good. It's Philip. Yeah. Philip the Good. He couldn't even be great. He just, you're, you're like, okay. You're good. <laughs> so the Duke of Burgundy is the leader of the Burgundian forces. The thing we need to understand about the Burgundians is that while allied with the English, it is a precarious alliance. 
The Duke of Burgundy is constantly negotiating taxes with the English Duke of Bedford, who is constantly trying to strong-arm the Burgundians and take all of the money from French lands. It's an uneasy alliance. But the Duke of Burgundy is also the son of John the Fearless, the man that was killed during the meeting with Charles VII with an axe blow to the head. This is essentially a blood feud and one not easily set aside. We have John of Lancaster, the Duke of Bedford. The Duke of Bedford is the late King Henry V's brother and the current child King Henry VI's uncle and regent in France. He was a formidable commander and politician, cautious but forceful, and it is under his regency in France that the English hit the height of their power. Interestingly enough, Bedford did not seem to be the least bit interested in usurping the throne from his infant nephew, as Richard III would later do with the princes in the tower. Yeah, during the War of the Roses. He acted in good faith for his nephew, and the English triumphed for it. Bedford knew that he would not be able to hold northern France if the Duke of Burgundy made peace with Charles VII. And any time peace talks were made between the Burgundians and Armagnacs, the Duke of Bedford was quick to recall the fact that Charles VII had murdered the Duke of Burgundy's father. I mean, that's a good thing to have in your back pocket to use. He used it. He set your father up in a horrible way. <laughs> he supposedly used it, like, all the time. Like, anytime you, they would have their peace talks, and then the Duke of Burgundy would be like... Do you remember when? <laughs> the Duke of Bedford, yeah. Would be like, hey, he murdered your father. And then the Duke of Burgundy would be like, you were right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so lest we start to sympathize with the Duke of Bedford at any point in the story, I'd like to point out something he once said of Joan. He called her a sluttish woman of ill repute, dressed as a man, and dissolute in her conduct. Wow. Yeah. Those are some harsh words. They literally called her the Armagnac whore. Yeah. All because she made them look like sad little men. Well, yeah. <laughs> and she was a woman who dared to... Yeah, if, they were, if she was on their side, yeah. they'd be calling her different names. They would. <laughs> we have Pierre Cochon, the Pierre? Bishop of Bouvet. Pierre was a member of the French clergy that was sympathetic to the Burgundian faction and loyal to the English. So this is probably actually the most important name to know. So he's French, friends. but he's loyal to the English. He's he's Burgundian. So he's a Burgundian sympathizer and they're allied with the English. Yeah. Um, but more than that, as it comes up like later when they investigate Joan's trial, a lot of people suggested he was actually paid by the English. He was in their pocket. So yeah, he very much was an English sympathizer and acted on their behalf. Interesting. He was also part of the Council of Constance, and you can think of him as the Burgundian rival to Jean Gerson, who was the theologian in our last episode. That was You said it right! I did. I've been practicing. <laughs> She's in the mirror. <laughs> I have been. I'm going to F it up now. <laughs> but yeah, so you can think of him. He's the Burgundian rival to okay. Jean Gerson. So like even the theologians had... Their own rivalries. So stupid. <laughs> and Gene is the one who with the he book, wrote. Yes, he wrote stupid the, the book that goddamn book that makes him the the end all be all of a subject that he has no idea about. I mean, is he, that the guy? He studied it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're not defending him, but you're defending him. I'm not defending him. I'm saying who he was at the time. Yeah. So at the time, his writings were used to discern whether yeah. or not somebody's visions were <laughs> demonic or angelic. I'm not saying I agree with him. I bet he would not. I'm like placing me. this in a perfectly neutral, like this is what this person did. I will be the person who does not do that. <laughs> I have to present. And says fuck this guy. <laughs> I have to present history somewhat objectively. Okay. <laughs> That's going to change by the end of this episode. 
He is closely allied with the Duke of Burgundy, and he is also the Dean of the University of Paris. Pierre Cochon ends up negotiating Joan's release from Burgundian captivity so that she can be charged in the ecclesiastical church. The way heretic trials worked was that if the church could solicit a confession and written repentance from a heretic, they would be able to save the heretic's soul and um, prevent them from being killed. Is it heretic or heretic? Heretic. <laughs> I knew it. I was never saying it. I like, I'm like, heretic? What is she? The whole point is the church um, with a lot of witch trials. Let's, we're going to not include Salem in this because that yeah. was completely different. But a lot of witch tr- trials aimed at getting the person to confess and repent. Yeah. So they would basically say, like, we don't want to kill you, but you do need to repent. Wouldn't they kill them anyway, just save their souls? No, a lot of people who confessed were actually, they would usually end up in prison, but they were not burned. It was the people who refused. Mm, Gotcha. Still shitty, either way you look at it. Oh, yeah. And that's what... (laughs) My jackass neighbor doesn't like me, so they just made me a witch. I don't understand what's happening. That's that's what happened all the time. (laughs) A lot of it was politically motivated, too. So if, like, you were a powerful woman who um, wasn't married and had... Yeah, so and had your own land, and, and the man next door to you was like, oh, I want to win. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, God, the patriarchy. It's great! So, <laughs> I like to think of Cachon as this kind of mustache-twirly church figure Yes. that puts on the face of a nice guy to Joan, but he also has a bit of a silver tongue, and he does everything he can to trip Joan up on her words. Wow. Yeah. So, he was, in the movie, he was like that bishop. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm just here to save you. You, you say mustache twirly, and now I just now all I picture is um, Hook from Peter Pan. That's how I picture him, That's but amazing. like in a <laughs> yeah bishop's whatever it's called costume frock. I don't know frock. I think that's right. <laughs> costume. <laughs> it is a costume. Let's be honest. Okay, so we got a couple more important things to remember. Following the victory at Orleans, Joan's fame spread across not only France but the whole of Europe. After Armagnac theologians verified Joan's status as being divinely ordained, letters about the Maid of Orléans could be found all across Europe. Practical realities of fighting an English army that was, for all intents and purposes, spread thin across the Loire Valley never entered the conversation. Mm -hmm. Orléans was Joan's victory entirely. Joan was not a military strategist. She did not command the army, but rather served as its heart and soul one that rode out with the head of the army and served as a magnetic and downright fanatic source of morale for the troops. Her enthusiasm was contagious. She was the mascot. (laughs) She was, but she was at least kind of in the fray. But as a fanatic, she did not understand the practical, quote-unquote, worldly logistics of waging a war. Joan continually encouraged Charles VII to ignore his advisors. They didn't need money, not when they had God on their side. Seriously, just take a second to think about how utterly strange that must have sounded coming from the mouth of a peasant teenage girl with no family name. She was a woman, first and foremost, and she was not noble. Yeah. Yeah. She's this this, like teenage girl. It's like you don't you have a very very um what's that word where you just like She's very narrow minded. Yeah. Yeah. She sees one objective. Mm And doesn't see anything else on either side of it. And then, of course, religious prophecy is a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Just as Joan's victory at Orléans and in the Loire Valley had served as proof that she had God's favor, 
So was it used against her the moment she found herself in Burgundian hands. If she truly had God's favor, why did God allow her to be captured? It's likely that Joan expected Charles VII to ransom her, as was typical of any knight that found himself in captivity. But Charles VII abandoned her. The French king was unwilling to raise the funds to ransom Joan. Her fate, it would seem now, was entirely in God's hands. Well, that's what I think we talked about it last episode, where it wasn't, you said it wasn't necessarily that he, you know, um, he set her up or anything, but like, you know, she was becoming more than what she started out as and almost kind of surpassing him in that idolatry. So the fame idolatry is that? Uh, It's not the right word. I don't know what the right but word the is. fame of like she's she's gaining fame amongst the people and it's almost becoming more than his. yeah yeah and I think and this is one of those like well my problem's gone kind of do I want to spend money time and effort to get it back <laughs> yeah so Joan had become the captive of Jean de Luxembourg <laughs> really so many Jean de Luxembourg. <laughs> Um, she was taken to Belouless Fountains, a.k.a. <laughs> upon her capture, where the Duke of Burgundy was said to visit with her face to face. He kind of just wanted to taunt her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, but he's a religious type. He's great. <clears throat> yeah, but she's a witch. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> she would only stay in Fountain Blue for three days before the French theologians at the University of Paris wrote to the Duke of Burgundy and requested that she be be released to them so that their inquisitors could investigate her suspected heresy. What is there to invest? Anyway, I'll keep going. I'm just (laughs) getting riled over here. We're going to find out what there is. Oh yeah. (laughs) Investigate. (sighs) So only the church had the authority to investigate crimes made against God. There you go. But their letter went ignored initially. Whatever Joan's crimes must have been, Jean de Luxembourg was motivated by his own greed, and he knew that Joan's ransom could net him a lot of money. Enter Pierre Cachon, the Bishop of Beauvais. Just the hypocrisy of only God can judge her through us. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, you want to see the problem? Is there a problem for you? Is there a problem? It's fine. <laughs> what could possibly be wrong with the idea of fallible men? Judging for God. Probably narcissistic men, too, who let the power of God go into them. It's not even the power of God. It's just the power of power. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Pierre Cachon is the dean of the university in Paris and the most important French theologian sympathetic to Burgundian and English ambitions. He provides Jean de Luxembourg with the ransom he so desired and convinces the English to pay, I believe it's 10,000 livres? Livres? Don't look at me like I know. <laughs> livres? Livres? Livres just sounds weird. <laughs> it does. So let's call it livres. <laughs> um, to release Joan. Um, a lot of money for the time. So wait, sorry. Who paid who? <laughs> so the English pay the Burgundians to release them into the church's care gotcha okay that's what i thought but i was like i don't know if i followed that right (laughs) so the way it works is from here joan is moved to the city of rouen in the duchy of normandy which served as the main headquarters in france for the english so she's kept in the castle there Mm -hmm. so at night she's under guard of the english but during the day they take her into her public trial (laughs) that's overseen by the church yeah 
And as this is happening, eight-year-old Henry VI of England is about to make his way across the English Channel to be crowned in France in direct opposition to the French pretender, Charles VII. Eight years old. Mm-hmm. What a time. Oh. <laughs> a couple of things to know about the trial that followed. It lasted for several months. Much of what we know of Joan's life comes specifically from the investigations conducted while she was imprisoned, as well as when she was put on trial before the public, because everything was recorded. Everything was documented, a rarity for the Middle Ages. The tribunal judging her case consisted entirely of pro-English and Burgundian clerics. Armagnac clerics were prohibited from participating, and the the trial was also entirely funded by the English crown. Yeah, but even though it was all quote-unquote documented, you got to think of who documented it and... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and who it's filtered through and mm-hmm. what they left out. What and, they keep in, what they, they yeah. take out, what they, they're like, let's just tweak this a little bit. The point is we get more. Yeah. We have about a better her. idea. It's, you know, it's you get way up more, to interpretation versus. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, you have way more quote unquote primary sources compared to uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine as even though we know a lot about her. Yeah. Almost all of it is secondary. Yeah. So. I'm researching someone right now, and that is the problem that I'm running into, because <laughs> nobody, like, she's very, very popular in the folklore of her nation, yeah. but nobody wrote about her. <laughs> yeah, you're just telling the story. Yeah. You tell the story and you mention that. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> It'll be a reverse difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> Joan was denied the right to a legal advisor. And the trial also violated even medieval church standards, which require that all heresy trials be conducted and judged by an impartial and balanced group of judges, which was impossible to do given the makeup of the jury. That also doesn't exist because humans. No, but even by their own standards of the time. And then a couple of extra tidbits before we get into the nitty nitty gritty details of the trial. It was imperative that Pierre Cachon put Joan on trial as quickly as possible. Another woman by the name of Perion, I believe, <laughs> claimed to also have visions from God that told her that Joan had acted in God's will. No. <laughs> that woman was burned as a heretic, but the French, the French clergy was concerned that more support for Joan would continue if they did not take care of it. ASAP. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're going to burn her because she's putting all sorts of holes in our story and that is not okay, but it's okay because God wills it. So Joan also attempted to escape from captivity on more than one occasion before the English could secure Joan's transfer into their custody. She jumped from the window of the tower she was being locked up in at Bouvet Castle. Wow. And when the English finally had Joan in their hands, she had been a prisoner for seven months. They issued the following letter in the name of the now nine-year-old King Henry VI. Can't. <laughs> it is sufficiently notorious and well-known how for some time a woman who calls herself Joan the Maid has put off the habit and dress of the female sex, which is contrary to divine law, abominable to God, condemned and prohibit- prohibited by every law. She has dressed and armed herself in the habit and role of a man, has committed and carried out cruel murders, and, it is said, has led the simple people to believe through seduction and deceit that she was sent from God and that she had knowledge of his divine secrets together with several other very dangerous dogmas, most prejudicial and scandalous to our holy Catholic faith. 
I have so many things. <laughs> but what's the problem? This bitch dressed as a man. And? Oh, she dressed as a man. Okay. She dared to act as a man. She made us look like stupid idiots. <laughs> God, I just that whole... And then, and then a nine-year-old king's like, and? <laughs> Can I go, like, play on the playground? <laughs> so at the end of the letter, it said... If it should come to pass that she is not convicted or found guilty of the said crimes, it is our intention to retake and regain possession of this Joan. So in short, it did not matter if the church convicted her or not. She she was already convicted in the eyes of England. Well, and she would re- she would be retained as a prisoner of war. So basically she was just screwed. And she was a woman prisoner. So that's got to not be great for her. So Joan's jury consisted of 42 men made up of clerics and scholars, most of whom were trained out of the University of Paris. As already previously noted, none of the present clerics were of Armagnac origin. They were exclusively English and Burgundian leaning. Seems fair. Inquisitors had already been questioning Joan for weeks, and at the start of the trial, a report had already been prepared. The opening of the trial opened with the following. Hi. <laughs> The report that now became well known in many places that this woman, utterly disregarding what is honorable in the female sex, breaking the bounds of modesty and forgetting all feminine decency, has disgracefully put on the clothing of the male sex, a shocking and vile monstrosity. And what is more, her presumption went so far that she dared to do, say, and disseminate many things beyond and contrary to the Catholic faith and injurious to the articles of its orthodox belief. I think they're more pissed that she's in men's clothing, honestly. <laughs> like, you're... P- bye, Jane. Bye, Jane. You're putting her on trial because she's in men's clothing. Well, this is what happens when you take the Bible literally, Kat. And this is what the issue is when people... The Bible are, written by... <laughs> again, when somebody says, yes, the Bible is literal, then you say... If you're a woman, are you wearing pants? Because if you are, you've yeah. committed a sin. Yeah. And you if you're a woman, are you probably? <laughs> um, anyway, that's our religious trauma. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that, that is the crux of the argument made against her. That's why it's dangerous to put your entire religious put your faith in a belief. book. Yeah. It's a book written by men. We're not talking about that though. They do kind of. We'll get, really? we'll get to that. I mean, okay. they don't, but the trial gets put on trial. The trial gets put on trial. No, so, no, I'm saying I want to put the men who wrote the Bible on trial. No. Did you hear from God? Or maybe it was just your hubris. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> That's another episode. <laughs> In addition to accusing Joan of heresy and being under demonic persuasion, the chief charge laid at Joan's feet was that she dressed as a man. More than that, she presumed to act as a man by engaging directly in warfare. It was up to the gathered theologians to issue their judgment. Joan had claimed that she was acting as a part of God's will, a claim that had spread across Europe. It was up to the gathered clerics to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was a false claim. You will recall that the Armagnac theologian, Jean Gerson, had previously absolved Joan of this so called crime, claiming that. Dressing in men's clothing was necessary for her safety. I just, I just need everyone to know that when I laugh or when I giggle, it's not giggling at Joan's predicament. It's just the stupidity of it the all, and the fact that this woman was burned. Girl, yeah, this child was burned for yeah. this bullshit. Anyway, 
One thing we need to understand about heresy trials is that the goal is often to solicit first a confession from the defendant and then repentance. If the defendant confessed to their sins and expressed heartfelt repentance, they would be saved and serve life in prison. If the Mm -hmm. defendant refused to confess or repent, then they would be handed over to the secular court, which is where they would be convicted and burned at the stake. Bishop Cachon wanted Joan to confess, supposedly to save her life and her soul. But I'd also imagine he also had more to gain politically if he could get the so-called Armagnac whore to confess rather than condemn a teenage girl to death and martyrdom. When Joan was brought before the court, silence fell upon the crowd as she stood before them as she had during her military campaign, dressed in men's clothes with her hair cropped short, visibly paler from captivity and more gaunt and skinny, yet she was composed and focused. During the trial, Joan was asked to swear on a Bible to tell the truth as she knew it to be. Joan told the cleric she would tell the truth about her life in Domremy and everything she knew about the Catholic faith, but she would not speak on her spiritual visions. These were between her, her king, and God alone. That verbiage is a setup. The truth as she knew it to be. The truth as I know it to be versus the truth as you know it to be are two totally different things. You're being too logical. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> There's no logic in this. <sighs> that was just like a this red is, flag that just got thrown up. I was like, excuse this me. This is all a political scapegoat. That's the whole uh, point yeah. of Joan. Yeah. That I think gets lost in the translation of her story. Yeah. So Bishop Cachon tried to get her to reveal the specifics of her visions several times. And Joan remains steadfast in refusing to reveal anything to them. This will be a reoccurring theme. Joan was asked if she was baptized. She was. And Cachon asked her if she knew how to recite the Lord's Prayer. She confirmed that she did. But when she was asked to repeat it, she said she would only do so if she was granted a priest to hear her confession. And only to that priest. This becomes another reoccurring theme. You said the Lord's Prayer. My brain was automatically like... So that's actually what I was going to ask you. Um, what is the deal with this? Are you are you only allowed to say the Lord's Prayer after making a confession? Uh, you're asking me things from years ago. So the Lord's Prayer, I think, is Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name. Blah, blah, blah. And then, but there's also Hail Mary, full of grace. And I I remember saying so that's actually Hail Mary once. That's another one. Yeah. I, I didn't include it, but they were I remember, like, they, I think it's both. Again, guys, I haven't been inside a Catholic church in quite some time. Um, but I think it's both where, like, you have your rosary, you go to confession, and... So you recite the Lord's Prayer? You, it, they, they tell you, say, so-and-so, our fathers say, so-and-so, Hail Mary is with your rosary beads, and you're forgiven. Yeah, that's the look that's... I gave every priest that told me that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> answers my yeah question. so the last if i went into, into a confession booth right now and the priest said how long has it been since your last confession I'd be like well i'm gonna confess that now <laughs> it's been um 20 years <laughs> so i just never something really felt icky to me about going into a small box oh yeah and on the other yeah, side yeah, yeah. confessing your sin yeah especially when I didn't go to quote unquote Catholic school, but I had like after school Catholic school mm-hmm. and after school, after Catholic cool, school. after school Catholic school. And they, they made you confess to a priest. I'm like, I'm fucking like five years old. I didn't do anything. Like I have nothing to confess. Like I would get cranky when yeah. I'd get mad. Like I was out of the breath. <laughs> See, I was raised in the, um, 
evangelical faith mm -hmm. and we didn't do confessions. That was just not a thing. Yeah. The priest could listen to you. Like if you, if you needed to, because yeah. your evangelical God is not a, a like sadistic, sinister monster. No, the who... people are. Yeah. 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 <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. But that's the difference between your evangelical versus Catholic. hardcore Irish Catholic is they want you to believe that God is watching you at all times why and you better be on your knees all the time. The and... United States official religion needs to be Christianity. I'm always like, which one? Because they're yeah. a different versions. That's an entirely different. Yeah. <laughs> that will be another episode when we talk I... about Elizabeth I and Catherine Medici. Yeah. Joan's defiance was on display early in the trial. A few days in, after she was asked to swear on the Bible once more, she said, I took an oath for you yesterday. That should be quite enough for you. You burden me too much. Yes, girl. <laughs> It is during the trial that Joan revealed that she heard the voices from heaven for the first time in her father's garden at the age of 13. And again, that it was God's voice that revealed Charles VII to her amongst the crowd when she was asked to pick him out. So I guess that's where that yeah. story came from. Yeah. Um, and the way she describes it is she would always get like a flash of really bright light and then the voice would follow. Oh, no. <laughs> Joan was asked to repeat these stories several times across several different days, and her story remains the same for the most part. But she does pivot back and forth between suggesting one voice and many voices, referring to them sometimes as the voice of God, the voice of spirits, or the voices of saints. Another key thing Joan refused to speak on was whether or not the voices asked her to wear men's clothing. This was the gotcha moment hook that the clerics were looking for. If Joan ever revealed that the voices told her specifically to dress in men's clothing, it would be proof that these voices were not angelic, but rather demonic because no godly spirit would ask a woman to wear men's clothes because again, this would be contradictory to what is said in the Bible. Again, God doesn't have time to care about your dumbass clothes. Or Joan repeatedly refused to answer that question again, comes up multiple times, and again, she refuses to well, answer. Well, all she had to do was say, no, the French made me do it. Like, I mean, either way, she's not getting out of this. No, but... she very specifically says, I will not blame anyone else. That action, I took that action on my own. That's annoying, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that, you know, she has to know that she's not getting out of this no matter what she says. Yeah, well... I would... Mm. No, she she truly believes God's going to rescue her. The more we get into this story, the more it's just it becomes devastating. Honestly, like I, I I'm already I devastated just because this girl got into this because of because she believes so fervently. And Bishop Cachon continued to ask her questions about the voices. Um, she claimed to even have heard them the day of the trial and like the days before. Oh. And at one point, Joan turns to him directly and says. You say that you are my judge. Take care what you do, for in truth I am sent by God, and you put yourself in great danger. This girl. The thing she says, and the moment she says them, I wish I had that skill. <laughs> You're just like, oh. <laughs> so she's basically saying that her visions give her the authority to reject the church's judgment of her and even put her above their judgment. Ooh, I bet that spark there. <laughs> They were not Egos. happy. Yeah. Shit. Bishop Cachon <laughs> continued to press Joan about the nature of the voice or the voices she heard. She remarked that before the voice came, again, there was that bright light. 
Kashon asked Joan if she was able to request the voice in her head to deliver a message to the king, to which she'd reply that she did not know if the voice would do as she asked, because again, it was the will of God. Yeah. Pressed even more about it, Joan said, I will not tell you all. I do not have leave to do to do so, and my oath does not cover this. The voice is good and worthy, and I'm not bound to answer about it. <sighs> Before and during the trial, the clerics gathered to judge Joan had been conducting a number of inquiries from the people that knew Joan to build their case against her. At one point during the trial, they bring up the fact that there was a tree in her village that the villagers claimed had fairies in it. And I brought up this tree. I know. And brought up <laughs> the fact that some people left their garlands for the fairies. According to their faith, fairies did not exist. And if there were any spirits in that tree, they were demonic in nature. <laughs> so again, they're trying to say, like, you you left garlands for yeah. evil spirits, which must indicate your evil. Evil spirits, just because we say they're evil spirits. Mm-hmm. At this point, Bishop Cachon and the other clerics are doing whatever they can to get Joan to trip up. The longer the trial goes on for, the greater the chance for Joan to slip up in her responses and say whatever magical words they are looking for to condemn her. This is literally how corporations deal with lawsuits. They just keep throwing crap after crap after crap until the other person uh, runs out of money. I just want to hit the duology of church and corporations. Anyway, continue. The line of questioning related to the voices she heard would continue for days. Always trying to distinguish once and for all if the voice came specifically from angels or spirits or God himself. So finally, Joan claimed she had heard the voices of St. Catherine and St. Margaret and, and then later of the archangel Michael. There was supposedly a hushed silence at this from the court. And Bishop Cachon suddenly was full of question after question about what the spirits looked like and if they appeared to her in corporeal form. I saw them with my bodily eyes, just as well as I see you. And when they left me, I wept and truly wished that they had taken me with them. It's at this point that Bishop Cachon knows that he has her. Ugh. And that's his gotcha moment. To your <laughs> Catholic doctrine. Don't! Throw, okay. do, not, do not throw ownership at me. According to the Catholic doctrine of the time, <laughs> spirits and angels can appear on earth to humans, but not in any discernible corporeal form, says the patriarchy. Corporeal meaning having the nature of a physical form. This line of thinking derives from the writings of Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century Catholic theologian and philosopher that claimed spirits and angels did not appear in physical form. And this was one of the standards for which you could discern the nature of a, per- of a person's spiritual visions. If a spirit appeared to you with a corporeal form, it was not angelic in nature. But they would come back to that later. Oh yeah, we'll circle back. In the meantime. <laughs> we have more bullshit to throw at her, hold on. Bishop Cachon continued to ask her about the sword that was retrieved from her or for her at the Church of St. Catherine and the banner she rode with. Joan reiterated several times during the trial that it was the voices that told her where the sword could be retrieved, and also that she had never killed anyone in battle herself. Because again, that was the claims made against her. Yeah, yeah, I heard murder in there a yeah. while back. Bishop Cachon at this point was interpreting Joan's visions as a matter of sorcery, and so now he was asking rather blatantly about the fairy tree back in her village. And if she had ever come into contact with mandrake roots or healing rings, because again, these are totems of witchcraft. (laughs) 
On the final day of her public interrogation, Cashone asked Joan about her attempted escape. She had remarked that she did not want to be delivered to the English, so she had commended herself to God and had jumped. This line of questioning was really trying to determine if Joan had attempted suicide when she jumped. Which is a big no-no Another in the Catholic Church. Yeah. You said it. Yep. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that marked the end of her public inquisition. <laughs> At the end of the trial, Bishop Cachon said the inquisitors would study Joan's words and craft more questions to be issued to her in private. This group of inquisitors would be much smaller, led by Bishop Cachon and the deputy to the lead inquisitor in France. Another, Jean de la Fontaine. Come the fuck on! I'm sorry. <laughs> That was his name. We only have five names. Ah! <laughs> the questioning that followed lay around the nature of the voices and spirits she had heard and seen, as well as the signs she claimed to have been revealed to her and to King Charles VII. Just like the public trial, Joan gave them partial answers and stalled where she could, claiming always that she did not have permission to reveal the nature of the sign that she revealed to her king. Day in and day out, the inquisitors would enter her cell, question and prod where they could, slowly biding them time until they could get Joan to trip up and reveal the answers they were looking for. Again, they asked her what the sign was that was revealed to Charles VII to convince him that she was acting in God's will to help crown him. Joan's old defiance returned. I won't tell you anything about it. No one could design a thing as rich as this sign is, and in any case, the sign you need is that God will deliver me from your hands, and it is the most certain one he could send you. So this suggests that Joan was well aware that they would not believe anything she said, and the only sign that they would accept from her was that she was truly a prophet of God, and that God himself would come and pluck her from her cell. Mm. <laughs> oh, gosh. I so, just think it's funny, too, that I just... it. It floors me when people demand signs from God and demand miracles and demand he answer their prayers. I'm like, that's not what this is about, but okay. Oh, of course not. <laughs> so in time, they do get her to reveal the sign that was given to Charles VII. And this is Joan's story supposedly revealed to us with the permission of St. Catherine. So back in Chinon, an angel had brought Charles a golden crown. The angel was surrounded by other angels and spirits, some of whom were also crowned, and among them being the saints Catherine and Margaret. The angel presented the crown to Charles VII and promised that he would regain the kingdom of France with Joan's help. When Joan was asked why God had chosen her, she said that it was because it pleased God to deliver France from the English by sending a simple maid. The inquisitors continued to question Joan in her cell. At this point, they are trying to dupe her into repenting. They continually ask her if she knew she had committed a mortal sin by attempting to jump from her prison tower earlier and by wearing men's clothes. Joan consistently responded every time that she acted on God's will alone. Joan claimed that St. Catherine promised her that she would receive her deliverance at some point and to just keep the faith. At this point, it seems like she truly believes she will be freed if she remains stalwart and true or that someone will come to her rescue, but no one ever does. That poor child. On March 18th, 1431, the Inquisitors had drafted up formal formal articles of accusations regarding her heresy. They were read to Joan one by one, and this was the declaration made against her. 
Let her be pronounced and declared a sorceress or soothsayer, diviner, false prophetess, invoker, and conjurer of evil spirits, superstitious, engaged in and practicing the magic arts, evil thinking and evil doing, blaspheming God and his saints, scandalous, seditious, a disturber of the peace, and an obstacle to it, inciting wars, cruelly thirsting for human blood and encouraging its shedding, wholly forsaking the decency and reserve of her sex, a heretic, or at least vehemently suspected of heresy. I love how they're like, this bitch is inciting wars. Hold on. The wars that y'all have been fighting for 80 freaking years? Well, yeah, because they're the rightful rulers of France, and she's the rebel. <sighs> just a maid. Even though they're English. Also, that entire first half, you may refer to me as that from now on. I know, I was thinking, <laughs> I was like, none of I'm like, sounds- check. Check. None of the hell yes. I'm, I don't see the problem. <laughs> I'd be like, thank you. Put that on my tombstone. Okay. You're, that I'm, I'm dying false before prophetess. you. It's just, I'm just saying. And sorcerer, sorceress and soothsayer. Yes, I'm a soothsayer. Jasmine, so, the look on Jasmine's face is, me too. <laughs> so it was the expert opinion of the Inquisitors that the visions Joan claimed came from God were instead entirely made up. Or if these visions were indeed real, they came from evil spirits, and she lacked sufficient understanding to discern the fact that they were not indeed from heaven. So Joan is basically condemned for her so-called ignorance about her own visions. Wow. So by now, Joan has been in prison for 10 months. She has undergone a rigorous public trial and an even more rigorous private inquis- inquisition, and she is now sick. The clerics continue to visit her cell, asking her to repent her sins. In doing so, she'll be able to save her soul. Joan consistently said then, as she had throughout the whole trial, that she would gladly submit to the church, so long as the church did not make her forego any oaths already sworn to God. While imprisoned, Joan refused the dresses that were offered to her. She found that while in prison, just as well on her military campaign, she was safer from her jailers when she wore men's clothes. Yeah, it's less easy to access. Sorry. Apparently, Joan spoke of being poked and prodded by her male jailers. Possibly even worse than that, men's clothes served as her only form of armor. That's so upsetting. Bishop Cachon always appeared to Joan as a kindly and concerned member of the clergy. He wished only to save her soul and did not blame her for her ignorance. She was, after all, a member of the lesser sex. If she repented, the church could save her soul. If she refused, they would have no other choice but to abandon her to the secular courts. And in the secular court, it was well known that she would burn. As Joan grew sicker, she pleaded to have her final confession in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The Eucharist sacrament, like, is that required to go to heaven Um, in the Catholic faith? So in the Catholic faith, you have to confess your sins before you can, you can do all the things. And as long as you confess your sins, you get into heaven. I'm assuming the last Eucharist has something to do with that because when you confess, yeah. You take the body of the Christ, right? That's what the Eucharist is. Yeah, the body and the blood. You guys believe, sorry, not you guys, the Catholic faith believes that is like actually God's blood and yeah, his body and his blood. So that's another difference with like the Protestant faith. They're yeah. just like it's a representation. No, so the Catholic Church knows that it's not actually like. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, we know we're eating bread and drinking fucking grape juice or wine in some churches. I think we. 
great piece of nice. Last rites are a big thing. Yes. With especially Irish Catholic. And she she was very concerned with making sure she got them. Yeah, like they, if you don't get your last rites, like it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And they continually denied her. Yeah. So Bishop Cachon continued to say that he could not grant these things to her unless she repented her sin, bargaining her entry to heaven with a confession. I hate men. Literally, you're using her, yours and her faith against her to get what that's, you want. That's what the whole trial was. Yeah. So Joan was asked by the clergy members if she fully understood the gravity of her situation if she refused to repent. Do you, can you imagine how, I don't know if she should be pissed, disheartened, or disappointed, probably all of the above, I think, in these clergymen. Like, I know, well, no, because she doesn't consider them like to be true representatives. Yeah. She considers them to be false. Yeah. So on May 2nd, 1431, Bishop Cachon made a public ruling to the court of assembled clerics declaring all of Joan's crimes. The church militant was infallible, it was declared. Joan committed a sinful perversion by wearing men's clothes. Provisions did not come from heaven, as she had claimed, and she refused to repent for her sins. To this, Joan said, I do believe that the church militant cannot err or fail, but as for my words and deeds, I lay them before God and refer in all things to him who had me do what I have done. When asked if she would submit to the Pope and his cardinals if they were there before her, Joan said, you will get nothing more from me on this. Hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, you've just completely shown that you're not, you're not in this to protect the sanctity of the church. You're in this for your own political gains and that of England's and the Burgundies. And she's like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) The Clares continued to press Joan, warning her of the fire that awaited her if she did not repent. And to this, Joan said, you will not do what you are saying against me without evil seizing upon you, body and soul. At this point, the cleric supposedly broke out in this huge uproar. (laughs) Well, yeah, because she basically was like, you all going to hell. (laughs) You think I'm going to the fiery depths of hell? (laughs) So Joan was dragged to her cell after this. And several days later, she was retrieved by her inquisitors and dragged to a private room in the tower she was being held. There, the clerics presented her with a number of torture devices that included knives and pincers. She was told that the church had been kind with her, but she continually lied and rejected their advice, and now they would have to resort to violence to lead her back to the path she had strayed from. It's not violence if if it's in the name of God, Rachel. And to this, Joan said, If you were to have me torn limb from limb and my soul separated from my body, I still won't tell you anything more. And if I did tell you anything else about this, Afterwards, I would always say that you made me say it by force. Hell yes. On May 23rd, she was retrieved from her cell one last time and offered salvation if she would repent. Joan remained sullen as the theologian Pierre Maurice reread her crimes to her. Her visions were either fabricated or, if indeed real, demonic in nature. She purported superstition. By wearing men's clothing, she had gone against God's nature, marking her as a blasphemer. Claiming the saints had encouraged her to fight the Burgundians and English was also blasphemous. By waging war, she had encouraged tyranny tyranny and bloodshed. By leaving home without her parents' explicit permission, she had gone against God's will to honor thy mother and father. And perhaps the most damning thing above all others was the fact that she refused to submit to the will of God's earthly representatives from the church. When you find them, you let me know. 
and we'll talk. <laughs> Until then, shut up. <laughs> Pierre-Maurice encouraged her once more to confess and repent, to save her body from the fire and her soul from damnation. Joan, predictably, remained steadfast. She stood by what she said at her trial. That's the ego right there is, we can save you from the fires of hell. No, you can lead me to the path of salvation, but you cannot give me salvation because you, bitch, are not God. <laughs> the next morning, Joan was taken to the Abbey of St. Ouen in the center of the city of Rouen so that her sentence could be read before the public. As this is happening, she is standing next to a papyrus. Oh, God. <laughs> The clergy once more asked Joan to submit, and she spoke loudly above the clamor of the crowd. Joan reiterated once more that she had acted according to God's command alone and would submit only to the Pope in Rome. If the clerics truly wished for her to submit, they could call the Holy Father down to pass judgment himself. Hmm. Bishop Cachon denied her request, likely for political reasons. The French clergy, um, they were in charge of the trial, but Joan was technically still a prisoner of war to the English, so... There was no way the English were going to let her go. So as this is going on, Joan is standing next to the wooden planks that are literally moments away from being lit. Bishop Cachon announced that he had no other recourse but to release her to English secular control. And this is when Joan breaks. She proclaims loudly over and over that she wishes to submit. And the crowd is in an absolute uproar at this point. So Bishop Cachon moves forward asking Joan if she confessed her sins and renounced her crimes. She did, and a text was brought forth, waiting for her signature to seal the deal. Joan signed it, though observers um, in the audience noted that it was very hesitant and awkward. Well, yeah, because she's just signing it to save her life at this point. Yeah. Because she understands that she's like this visibly is bullshit. Yeah, and she knows that, or she strongly believes that. God is with her. She had these visions from God. She did nothing wrong. So. So Joan was saved, at least for the moment. When she returned to her cell, the clerics provided her with a dress to change into and shaved her head. This is part of the agreement. You're gonna, you're gonna act. You bitch about her accordingly. Cutting her fucking hair, and then you shave her head. Well, so the shaving. I know it's to it's to show that she's them. shamed. Yeah. Bishop Cachon believed himself to be triumphant. He had saved Joan's soul for Christ, and by getting a public confession out of Joan, he also served to invalidate Charles VII's claim to the French throne. Four days later, Joan requested Bishop Cachon's presence. So at this point, she has put on men's clothing once more and was visibly agitated and flustered. When they asked her why she had forsworn her oath, she told them she preferred men's clothes because she was in prison surrounded by men and had been denied her request to hear mass. Um, she also seems just completely out of sorts. Like yeah, something happened. Something probably happened. If you're in, in jail as a woman for 10 months, yeah. something is bound to happen. So at this point, Joan reveals that she had heard the voices of St. Catherine and St. Margaret. These voices told her that in saving her mortal body, she had damned her soul. Her confession was false because she was afraid of burning. Bishop Cachon asked her what the truth was, and Joan said once more, I told you the truth about everything in the trial as best as I knew, as I knew how. The following day, Bishop Cachon met with the other clerics and recounted everything Joan had said. They decided that as a relapsed heretic, she had forsaken the church, and thus it was time to abandon her to her feet. So Pierre Maurice, a different cleric, he visits Joan next. 
She was visibly less distressed at this point, presumably because she like is being true to herself once more. Yeah. Outside mm-hmm. in the center square, the pyre is being constructed again. Joan reiterated simply that her visions were real. Mm-hmm. Whether they are good or evil spirits, they appeared to me. She then admitted that there had been no angel in that meeting with Charles. Okay. She says she was the angel and the crown was her promise to Charles that she would lead him to his coronation. Well, that's actually more poetic. It is. It's very sad. So with that, another clergy member steps forward to give Joan her last confession. On May 30th, 1431, Joan was led to a scaffold in the center of Rouen. The streets were full of people come to watch the execution along with the clerics and inquisitors that had condemned her. Her verdict was read one last time. Joan was guilty of schism, idolatry, the invocation of demons, and many other crimes. As she was bound to the pyre, Joan asked two clergy members to hold up two crucifixes before her, and she herself held a crucifix to her chest. And then the pyre was set on fire, and Joan's last words, as she was dying, they become louder and louder. Mm -hmm. Or Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She was 19 years old. That's so upsetting. At least they acquiesced to her request in the end, but still, the fact that they put her through all of that. Just to just to, to satiate their own egotistical needs. Like, ugh. Um, apparently, witnesses, they'll come forward, like, decades down the line when the trial... <laughs> gets put on trial. Gets put on trial. <laughs> A lot of witnesses in the crowd were so... I kind of hate this, but it's also oddly beautiful, but they were so moved by her religious fervor as she was burning that they were moved to tears. I'd cry if I witnessed that. And then other people were like, oh yeah, we saw like the dove of St. Catherine, like fly from her spirit. God, that's insane. So how are we doing? No, we're not great. (laughs) Oh man, this, this is literally, this whole thing is like the epitome of, of my rage against the, yeah the catholic church yeah, just the hypocrisy and the the putting the taking the responsibility off of your chest and off of your shoulders and putting it onto a god well, and this is another example of like this isn't even like protestants and catholics fighting they they all worship the same god yeah but these men i bet you these men were so proud of themselves after after she burned like they probably were like we did they probably believed just as much as she did that they were yeah. doing the right thing. And the Duke of Burgundy sent heralds into all the city to announce that Joan had been burned. What a dick. After she was killed, Joan's executioner relit the pyre so that she would be turned to ashes to prevent anyone from taking any fragments of her body as a holy relic. I find that interesting. So he's scared. Yeah. <laughs> he is scared that he just turned her into a martyr, which you did. Well, and it's also like... You're scared people are going to use her as a holy relic, so you already know that, yeah, like... Yeah, your trial was a sham. Yeah. Yeah. And then her ashes were then thrown into the Seine River. King Charles VII remained silent following her death. In December of 1431, the young nine-year-old King Henry VI of England was crowned in Notre Dame as King Henry II of France, officially joining the two crowns. Bishop Cachon was in attendance of his coronation. So who the hell do you follow as a Frenchman? 
So um, do you literally have to like pick who to follow? No, it really is dependent upon who has occupied your city. That's true. So the way this worked, um, the people mm -hmm. in Paris were largely sympathetic to the English in large part because because of all the civil war going on yeah. with, the, with the French. Um, they were starving. There was a lot of fighting. It was just not a good time. Yeah. And the English kind of came in and yeah, like, we're going to take care of you. There was a quote. I don't remember where it's from now. And it's going to piss me off. And I'm not going to say it completely right. But it was basically like kings and, oh, you know what? I think it was from the Shadow and Bone books. But it was basically uh, kings and nobles don't fight the wars. They don't feel the wars. That they're just the wars for them are just statistics and numbers and pieces on a board. Yeah. It's the peasantry that feels the war. It's the peasantry yeah. that takes all the casualties and takes all the the terrible well terribleness this, of war. This whole time, like when Charles the Seventh had been making his procession. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Up to Ron's. I didn't, we could both be Ron, but I didn't. Right. I didn't really talk about it, but the whole time, like before he goes forth to the cities, he would send like a scout that would say, "Hey, King Charles is coming," and he said, "If you surrender the city now, like there will be no repercussions." Yeah. So towns all the time were just switching back and forth depending. <clears throat> They're on like, who was out "Who's giving me the food? I don't even care." Basically. Yeah, they don't care. They they don't care who's king. As long as they are the city after. of Troyes was like the only one that was like, no, get out. And it took more negotiations. <laughs> no, you're an idiot. <laughs> so um, a year later, plague swept across Europe. In Paris, the Duke of Bedford's wife, Anne of Burgundy, died. She was 28. As the sister of the Duke of Burgundy, all ties between Bedford and Burgundy seemed to fizzle and die. So she was really... The she uniting would, yeah. factor between those two, the Burgundians and the English. Oh, no. So not long after that, the Duke of Bedford marries, I want to say it's Joanna of Luxembourg, but she's this, like, 17-year-old heiress. She's not 12. <laughs> right? But this drives a huge wedge between him and the Duke of Burgundy, and then shortly after, the English and Burgundian faction just falls apart. So following that, Yolanda of Aragon enters the political arena once more, and she seizes upon the opportunity of that split between the Duke of Burgundy and the Duke of Bedford. Yolanda is Charles's mother-in-law. Yes. Okay. So she's our, like, queen of thorns. Yeah. And she <laughs> devises... Yes, with the double-headed. <laughs> she devises her own personal alliance with the Duke of Burgundy, which opens up communications. Oh, a couple of years after that, in the town of Arras, after 40 days of nonstop snowfall, the citizens of the town created a series of statues out of snow. Most of these were mythological figures, save for one that was clearly Joan of Arc at the head of her army. They made a Joan of Arc snowman. They did. <laughs> so these are the first signs that her memory isn't going anywhere. Yeah. Um, and then the, the city of Orléans, used to have celebrations, I believe, on the anniversary of oh. her liberating the city. Well, the, in her honor. The, the, the clergymen in the church didn't do themselves any favors by making this such a public mm -hmm. outcry. Like, you were... She was already beloved by the people she'd rescued. Yeah, but I mean, it could have died with those people, but you made it bigger than that Yeah, by making her an enemy of the church. So the Duke of Bedford died four years after Joan in 1435 at the age of 46. And as he lay dying, the Treaty of Arras was signed between the Duke of Burgundy and Charles VII. 
The Duke of Burgundy's murdered father was venerated and honored on the eve of the 16th anniversary of his death. The Duke of Burgundy and Charles VII made peace. Oh. In 1437, Charles VII finally enters Paris. In England, Henry VI's advisors struggled to fill the void that had been left by the Duke of Bedford's death, yet no one could quite fill his shoes. And by that time, Henry VI starts to come of an age when it's clear he should be taking over everything and coming into his own authority. But he is now showing signs that he has inherited some of his grandfather's psychosis. Oh, no. Charles VI, the Mad King. Yep. So in the end, it was the English that, who, that had to sue for peace with the French, if only to salvage the last of their remaining territory in France. To do so, Henry VI was married to another French girl, not a princess as his father before him had, but to someone on the margins. Her name was Margaret of Anjou, and she was the granddaughter of Yolanda of Aragon. Spoiler alert. I know that name. Winky face. <laughs> nudge, nudge. <laughs> Might be the next episode. Here's your goddamn sign. <laughs> so it was only after the English had been driven from Rouen permanently that Charles VII finally spoke of Joan. A long time ago, Joan the Maid was taken and captured by our ancient enemies and adversaries, the English, and brought to the city of Rouen. They had her tried by certain persons who had been chosen and given this task by them. And during this trial, they made and committed several errors and abuses, such that by means of this trial and the great hatred that our enemy had against her, they had put her to death very cruelly, inquitously, and without What's reason. What's the word? Iniquitously? <laughs> sure. I don't <laughs> Why you gotta choose all anyway, these hard to source words? He says the trial was bullshit. Yeah. And with that, Charles had... I just... Oh, it's too little too late, dude. Yeah. You... Yeah. And I like... His, I would imagine it weighed use, on his conscience. Oh, yeah. The use of his... Uh, the use of ancient, old... He's trying to distance himself from it like he wasn't a part of it but he was <laughs> no when he's saying my ancient enemy it's because france and england had always been at war so he's saying like this is an enemy that's been around for a long time and yeah. he's he's reminding the french people these people have all the english have always been evil boogeymen and they went and killed howard joan of arc yeah, you let them. yeah so again with that charles instructs the theologian gayum bouyel to investigate the previous trial, Charles VII has, is now the undisputed king of France and living proof that Joan had, in fact, been acting on God's will after all. Convenient. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Bishop Cachon had been accused of being in the English's pocket. He probably was. And thus the trial was conducted under false pretenses. It is during this investigation of the trial that some witnesses come forth and claim that Joan had been assaulted by the prison guards following her confession, and this had been the reason for her distress and the reason she had put men's clothing back on, which kind of proved her point. Yeah. That she yeah, was she, protecting herself. Yeah, that those, yeah. those britches were her freaking armor. I think because... that's the thing that like really upset me the most about all of this, is just after everything... Yeah, to be. she just suffered even more indignities. Yeah, but uh, that's yeah. 
Other accounts also state that the guards had removed the women's clothes themselves and then replaced them with men's clothes that she would later be found in. And she had supposedly begged them to return her dress to her as she had been forbidden to wear the clothes and knew that her fate, she knew what her fate would be if she was found. Yeah. Um, That's the way they played it in the movie. Yeah. And Um, I can see that happening too. I can see a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. They, they wanted her dead and they, they had an easy way to make it make it so. On November 7th, 1455, Joan's mother, brother, and several supporters from the city of Orléans stood in Notre Dame Cathedral to plead Joan's defense in the new trial that sought to reverse her charges of heresy. Her daughter had been raised in the faith and was falsely accused. They, pet- they petitioned to have her conviction examined by the Holy Father in Rome and overturned. So when all is said and done, and again, this isn't immediate because there's other political things going on at the time, it's determined that the 12 articles that had been drafted to condemn Joan were put forth corruptly, deceitfully, slanderously, fraudulently, and maliciously. And the trial was made or rendered null and void. Joan of Arc was innocent. Yeah. Glad you guys caught up. (laughs) So... Joan of Arc was officially recognized as a saint by the Roman Catholic Church on May 16, 1920. I was going to skip this, but decided not to. She was put forward for sainthood several times by different members of the church and met with several rebuttals due to her so-called arrogance and lack of patience shown during her suffering. The narrative within the church would ebb and flow through the centuries following her death with people arguing back and forth over whether she was a heretic or a saint, whether she was a demonic vixen or a virtuous woman above repute. The narrative changes throughout the centuries depending on who is in power and what the prevailing dogma on the nature of faith happens to be at the time. And almost anyone can find something of inspiration from her. French nationalists, religious fanatics, religious detractors, conservatives, liberals, feminists all have found their own excuses to use her memory to champion their causes. But at the end of the day, Joan was a young girl, and that's how I'd like us to remember her. A young girl that came out of nowhere in history to fight for a country that had been devastated by war and relentless in her convictions, even in the face of tyranny within her own church. A young girl who preferred to carry a standard to a sword. A young girl who was defiant. A young girl who was difficult. A young girl who used to leave garlands had a fairy tree. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> oh man. Oh. That was beautiful. I'm so I proud of you. Myself oh my god. <laughs> so yeah. Good God. That was nineteen-year-old Joan of Arc. Nineteen. So, um, go be difficult. Yeah. If, and if you honor. think you're being motivated by vision, just do it. Stick with it. But yeah. Go do your thing. <laughs> go drive the English from France. Yes. Wait. What are we doing? <laughs> so yeah, that that is Joan of Arc. Yes. I just want to point out the fact that your pants have been very distracting <laughs> because it, you look like you have like a, a like a robber wearing a face mask. <laughs> you guys, she looks like she has like a. a a mass bandit on her pants and it's just staring at me oh my god it gets weirder <laughs> i love you i took a picture of it because i was like she ain't gonna believe me one of my friends um i'd sent him just like a cat pic and i of also course, really like those pics. that 
that one part of my leggings happened to be in it. And he was like, your leggings look very breathy. (laughs) Shut up. I love those leggings. They're cute. They're very comfy. Fucking Jacques is sitting over here, like, staring me down. Like, shit. I know. I like to sit here sometimes and pretend it's talking. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Like, I'm not even judging you. Like, this makes me happy. (laughs) Really quick. The sources for this episode. Um... The primary source was Joan of Arc, A History by Helen Castor. And again, I can't recommend it enough if you are really interested in all of the political machinations going on. I did not even cover like half of them. Yeah. Read the book. It's it's very good. It has, again, goes into depth with the trial. Um, lots of primary quotes. I also used Wikipedia. And then if you want another podcast to listen to, which again goes more in depth, um, of the political machinations going on at the time, check out the other half. They just did a four-part series on Joan of Arc that I highly recommend. Yes. All right. So (laughs) you can find us at difficult.damsels at gmail.com if you would like to reach out to us. Yay. We're also on Facebook at Difficult Damsels, the podcast. And we're also on Instagram. Oh, did you officially do it? I have not figured that shit out. We exist somewhere in the Instagram verse. I am trying really hard to understand how it works. And okay, from the because I made it like a business. Okay, not a business, but like it's like an official. I tried to make it like an official. So we'll once yeah. we figure it out, we'll we'll post links. So definitely follow us. Notes. Yeah, on Instagram and on Facebook if you aren't and already. Again, if you want to support us, it would help and it's very important to actually go out and rate us on whatever yes, podcasting um app that you use give us five stars five stars only and if you um if you leave a review we'll, we will we want to hear from you guys we want to we want to hear what you think yeah. um we had someone on facebook reach out and ask for more pictures of yes. us podcasting so we're trying to do that but Guys, my apartment is a mess right now. Yeah, so that'll <laughs> once once Kat is in her um her new place and is actually settled, we can Yeah. And we'll have an actual like podcasting loft. Yeah, because we're literally sitting on a couch right now. Yeah, we're on a couch <laughs> in the middle of my living room and yeah. it's a mess and yeah, but yeah. But I'll, I'll hopefully have a loft and have actual podcasting. Yeah. Um stay safe out there and stay difficult. Stay difficult.